The EU sputtering vaccine rollout continues. Meanwhile, across the pond, New York states managed to make vaccines available for anyone who wants them. Politics and business lock horns in the US as corporate America hits back at Georgia's new voting laws. And North Korea says it's pulling out of the Tokyo Summer Olympics, a blow to the South's desire to restart relations. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition, here on Monocle 24. A warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. From Midori House in London, I'm Tom Edwards, joined today on the programme by Monocle's Daniel Bache elsewhere here in London, and from Milano by Ed Stocker. Welcome both to uh, today's programme. A quick word from you both. Ed, uh, Italy, has it treated you well this past Easter weekend? It has indeed, you know, eating, eating very well, drinking very well, what you expect from Italy, really. So, you know, obviously the hardcore exercise regime will start uh, possibly this week, possibly not. Uh, but not sleeping very well, I gather. Perhaps this isn't the time for this. We, we may hear from your youngster in the background, not, not giving you plenty of shut eye for the uh, seasonal break. If you hear a few screams in the background, uh, that was one, in fact. Don't know if that was picked up by the microphone. <laughs> that that will be a screaming child, uh, uh, you know, not in my high-tech studio setup. So any, any you know, ineloquence on my part can be, can be blamed on said child. You can blame anything on them, uh, Ed. I, I speak from experience. Daniel, you're in a child-free zone, right? Yours, your, your house is going to be like a library compared to that, I presume. Child-free zone, uh, one very uh, frazzled lawyer today. So uh, so dealing with that at the kitchen table, but uh, lots and lots on the go. No kids screaming as of yet, Tom. Let's into today's uh, big subject matter. We'll start by looking at the latest war of words between London and Brussels over the slow COVID vaccine rollout across the EU27. Today, Thierry Breton, the EU commissioner in charge of vaccine supply, said the blame was squarely on AstraZeneca for the bloc's failure to meet its target to vaccinate 80% of older people by the end of March. The Anglo-Swedish pharmaceutical company was only able to deliver 30 million doses of an expected 120 million in the first quarter. Um, Ed, let me throw this over to you. I guess uh, that logic and that argument will get pretty short shrift here in the UK, uh, which we've talked about on this programme before. Um, But what's the situation like where you are? I mentioned in Milan, you're still under some restrictions, of course. What is the situation? And are people on the ground where you are also looking to place the blame on others, perhaps on AstraZeneca? Of course, uh, we're seeing it in some newspapers. We're seeing some rhetoric uh, looking... um, you know, to find someone to blame. And and, and I guess that's the point, uh, trying to find someone to blame. It's also sort of being used by politicians as well. We know, and we've talked about this on Monocle 24 before, Tom, that there is a relatively new government here led by a technocrat, Mario Draghi. And he's basically come in and he's, you know, deemed as this sort of saviour of, of, of Italy and he's been very tough on sort of the way he's been phrasing things and he's said that he wants to up vaccinations. Uh, but the reality is, Tom, that uh, here on the ground, it's pretty diabolical. Um, only 30, only 13% of the population has had one dose uh, of a coronavirus vaccine and only 5.84%, that's about 3.4 million people, have had two doses around 87 percent of over 80 so the the um you know the going has been pretty slow and you know over the weekend on sunday la repubblica uh in its uh magazine 
basically uh, was leading with this big article looking at some of the things that went wrong. And it's just really, uh, you know, poor governing uh, the regions having too much power. And it's kind of nuts the way it's worked. The fact that they haven't, you know, certainly at the beginning under the former government, they weren't prioritizing uh, people just by age. Uh, You know, they were basically... At the beginning, it was frontline workers, you know, frontline health workers, but there was no definition of what a frontline worker was. And their stories in this article in this magazine about basically people working in hospitals, but working in the administrative sector, uh, possibly several kilometres from the actual hospital and having zero contact with patients, let alone patients with coronavirus being vaccinated. And then when the whole vaccination uh, measures were meant to be stepped up and they were meant to be expanding uh, to 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 other parts uh, of the population, it became those working in essential services. And the wording of the government at the time listed some of these essential services and put simply an etc at the end of the line, meaning it was completely up to uh, basically interpretation. And all sorts of different people have been vaccinated, including university workers, including magistrates, including lawyers. So all these sort of types of uh, professions, but not squarely focused on age groups. Now, that has sort of been corrected, but we're seeing uh, the problems of that poor, I guess, uh, governing uh, really being played out. Well, yeah, and if we talk about you know difficulties with labelling and some issues with governance, Daniel, it's funny, and to change course somewhat, if we go across the pond to, to your motherland, if we look at Canada... Um, Similar problems, actually. These issues with, you know, what is a frontline or an essential worker also playing their role in Canada's rollout, which is also pretty slow. Lots of criticism. Yeah, plenty of criticism, Tom. And uh, from the early days of, of the vaccine rollout, all that criticism was heaped on Ottawa for their failure to get vaccines actually being shipped into the country from the major pharmaceutical manufacturers. Now they have started to arrive. Uh, many have arrived from AstraZeneca. But the problem is we have mass vaccination centers, but in many cases, no one there to fill the appointments. There are lots of, of posts being put out there of, of empty chairs and, and nobody showing up. But on the point of what is deemed a, an essential worker, you know, that's really uh, fraying people's nerves this week, uh, where the argument is, well, who should be in line for those shots now that they are available? In the early days, of course, it was the elderly who were prioritized workers in care homes and uh, the elderly people in uh, those long-term care facilities. And then it was people like uh, my cousin, luckily, who is a a resident doctor working to be a neurosurgeon, who, of course, has been pulled in to work almost entirely in an emergency room during this pandemic. Uh, But now the debate is, well, should we continue on and and move very, very slowly down the the, the age bracket to the the 65s, to the over 60s, to the 55 to 60? And uh, in those age groups, nobody really knows, Tom, who can who can make an appointment, which is which is frustrating. Uh, but should it be those people who are actually putting themselves at risk because there are, you know, white collar workers across Canada who have the luxury of sitting at their kitchen table or, or, or elsewhere and don't have to commute to work and 
don't have to see anybody if they don't want to. Uh, they can go get a shot, but people who are working in the Amazon factory or in the meatpacking plant or in, in any of these places which have seen major outbreaks over the past year, you know, those people who are of working age, commuting on the subway, things like that, aren't uh, able to get in line. So that's really been the frustration at this point. The other thing is, is uh, who is in charge of, of deciding this because it's a big constitutional issue that gets in the way, Tom, because we don't have a national health service. It's all provincial. So uh, there's no more finger pointing at Ottawa because uh, all they can do is get those vaccines in the country, which they now are doing. It's up to the provinces to decide how to work this out. Well, indeed. And when it comes to an efficient rollout, one thing you need, as you've both suggested, is clarity about who's eligible. And it makes a lot more sense if we look south of the border, Daniel, from the picture you were painting uh, into the US, of course. Everyone over the age of 16 in New York state becomes eligible to receive a vaccine from today. It puts the Empire State nearly a month ahead of Joe Biden's initial target date for national universal eligibility, which was May the 1st. But are things across New York state really as good as they seem? Here's our New York correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan, with more. Yesterday, I finally managed to book an appointment to get vaccinated, which is just as well because now all New Yorkers over 16 are eligible and I've got no appetite to enter into an online booking competition with Generation Z or Generation Z as they're known here in New York. This is a major milestone and it's the crest of a wave of optimism New York has been surfing for a few weeks now. Last Friday, theatres, music venues and comedy clubs opened at 33% capacity. Indoor dining has been at 50% since mid-March. These reopening measures coincide with the start of spring and the religious symbolism of Easter. On Sunday, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, posted a picture on Instagram of a bunch of eggs with letters painted on them. The letters spelled out, Happy Easter NYC. And he wrote that this year, Easter coincided with the beginning of a wonderful season of renewal, hope and rebirth. De Blasio is putting his money where his eggs are. He set May the 3rd as the target date to begin returning 80,000 government workers to city buildings. This sense of optimism is also palpable on the streets. Manhattan, in particular, has been bustling for weeks now. People pantomime social distancing inside businesses and on public transport, but it's not really being enforced. You get the sense that for many people, in particular young, healthy transplants, haven't actively feared the virus for many months now. These people are impatiently waiting for the green light to start partying again, if they haven't already, behind closed doors. The slightly eerie thing about all this optimism is that it doesn't correspond with any meaningful reduction in the transmission rates of coronavirus in the state. Since mid-February, the seven-day average of new cases has largely hovered around 7,000. How can this be given the rapid vaccine rollout? Public health experts talk about a stalemate between new strains of the virus and vaccinations. But if that's the case, why are the state's highest elected officials able to peddle optimism in the face of these stubbornly high transmission rates? The answer throws an uncomfortable fact into relief. 
it's likely coronavirus will become endemic in many parts of the world. That means it will continue to recur, perhaps seasonally, in some places for many years to come. There's a good chance that New York City, with its extraordinary diversity and high level of population churn, could become one of those places. So the return to normal life is almost certainly going to come while the coronavirus is still at large in the city and the state. One of the instruments with which we'll navigate the return to normality are so-called vaccination passports. In partnership with IBM, New York State has developed the first one in America. It's an app called Excelsior, named after the state's motto. The app will confirm if someone's been vaccinated so they can gain access to businesses and public events. The initiative is not without its critics. There's a fear it will create a society segregated along the line of vaccination. This is particularly concerning when you consider that a smaller percentage of black and Latino New Yorkers are vaccinated compared to white and Asian residents. For now, I'm looking forward to my vaccination appointment at City Field, home of the Mets baseball team. Now that the season has started, the vaccination centre within the facility has been moved to make way for fans. It used to be in something called the Jackie Robinson Rotunda. Now it's in something called McFadden's Sports Bar and Restaurant. On its website, McFadden's describes itself as a 13,000-square-foot tavern for crowds seeking an unpretentious party. As a pretentious individual who hates to party, I'm somewhat apprehensive at what I might find there, though I do welcome the ample square footage for the sake of social distancing. That was Henry Reese Sheridan in New York City. Henry will be getting his jab. Um, he'll have to go to uh, the home of the Mets uh, to get it. Ed Stocker, when you were resident in New York, did you ever visit Mets Stadium? You probably actually were more likely to be found, to be found in the Mets, weren't you? A cultural man like yourself. Oh, how right you are. Thank you so much for that little tea out, Matt. I'm actually just, I mean, not to answer that question at all and do that clever little thing of diverting. I just want to make a comment. I, I'm pretty jealous. Uh, of all those people in New York um, uh, getting their jabs. All my friends who are still living in New York are sort of chatting over a WhatsApp group about getting their vaccinations and are kind of smug about it. And being in Italy and having said what I just said about the state of vaccinations here, I feel like I'm going to get mine at best by the end of the year. So I'm I'm a little a little jealous. And it it is just kind of a remarkable turnaround, really, having you know, been living uh, in New York during uh, the chunk, you know, the the the, fir- the chunk of the first wave, uh, and seeing how lethargic vaccination was, the fact that New York is able uh, to provide this to people, and you know, under thirties, etc. Like you said, everyone, uh, it, 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 even younger from today, it, it is quite an incredible feat. So, although jealous, I'm also pleased, and it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens if everyone's going to start going partying or f- in Florida. Or what? Uh, well, Ed, look, keep your metaphorical Mets hat on, because actually I want to ask you uh, another question based more on your erstwhile residence within New York City, uh, because we're going to stay in the United States now, uh, but we're going to turn our attentions a little further south and look at corporate America's reaction to new Republican-backed voting measures 
In the state of Georgia, the bill, of course, was signed by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp last week, and it requires, to put it in sort of succinct terms, uh, identification for absentee voting, limited ballot drop boxes, and the prohibition on offering food or water to voters in line. Very controversial. Leaders of major Georgia-based businesses have responded swiftly, including the heads of the likes of Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines. Delta CEO Ed Bastian said the bill's unacceptable, based on a lie and doesn't match his company's values. Ed, we've probably not got that many listeners stateside who don't know the ins and outs of this, but for some of our global uh, audience, just remind us exactly what the idea of these new measures was uh, to begin with. I mean, well, look, uh, Brian Kemp argues that uh, it would actually facilitate voting. So, uh, you know, uh, people are very split depending on on, on what side of the political divide uh, you're on. But don't forget just how crucial uh, Georgia has been to uh, elections. Well, to be honest with you, particularly uh, the election that voted in Joe Biden, the fact that it flipped blue, which was a surprise when it was largely down to uh, the campaigning of people like uh, Stacey Abrahams uh, and, you know, don't forget that Donald Trump also tried to sort of influence the outcome of that vote. He tried to sort of get officials uh, there to overturn the election results. You know, Georgia has become this swing state. And so therefore, at the same time, it's an extremely polarised place, despite the fact that it it flipped uh, democratic in terms of this the election, the fact that Joe Biden won it, the fact that uh, runoff elections saw, uh, w- uh, saw Democrats win the Senate there. They now have two Senate seats there that's helped flip uh, the National Senate in favour of the Democrats. So it's, you know, an important place. Um, but having said all of that, the Republicans control the local House of Representatives and the local Senate. So the state uh, chambers are, are controlled by Republicans. And, you know, like I said before, Republicans would argue that this is facilitating voting. For example, one of the most controversial things that you mentioned, Tom, is this idea that you can't give money or gifts when people are in the line um, to go and vote and in particularly in some of the more impoverished black parts of Georgia those lines uh, have known to be very long and obviously it can it can get hot in that part of the US as well now Republicans say now the giving of money or gifts includes by the way uh, food and drink uh, like you mentioned now Republicans would argue that this actually has been brought into place to stop uh, voters being potentially influenced. So the idea being that, you know, someone offering free food and drink could then use that as an opportunity to sort of get in there and maybe influence that voter, which, of course, to some may seem uh, a little uh, ludicrous. Uh, obviously, Democrats say that, you know, taking away these provisions may stop people uh, wanting to queue up for hours uh, in order to go and vote. And there's a whole host of other things that, that make it, you know, it, it a lot harder uh, basically there's more power for the state uh, board uh, of elections to basically get involved in in, in local um, disputes and basically they can uh, they can basically take control of local uh, election boards if they think there's been uh, you know an issue with uh, with voting there so obviously given the fact that the uh, the the state board and and the state chambers as i mentioned before are controlled by republicans um 
you know, that potentially gives Republicans uh, a lot of power uh, to influence elections going forward. And it's pretty obvious, Tom, uh, that the real sort of uh, area that Republicans have in their sight and, you know, Democrats are saying this is a sort of hostile takeover of Georgia, that it's undemocratic. We know what Joe Biden's been saying. He sort of called it a, a sad day for America, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, having said all of that, we've seen uh, these sort of tactics to a lesser extent all over the the, the country. This idea of gerrymandering, trying to carve out uh, advantages in elections. But the really what Republicans are t- trying to target is uh, Fulton County. Fulton County is really uh, the the sort of prize uh, when it comes to Georgia and the difference between Georgia being a red or a blue state. Now, Fulton County contains the city of Atlanta, which is extremely blue which is extremely diverse, which has for a while now uh, been one of those hubs that is growing and growing. It's often up there with one of the fastest growing uh, cities in the US. So if if some of these things can affect uh, the outcome there, then maybe Republicans feel they may have a chance uh, of winning back the state of Georgia, which of course went to Democrats by a pretty uh, small margin. Democrats argue that this affects largely poor and black parts uh, of uh, Georgia and often those areas have in the past voted Democrat, Tom. Uh, thanks for that, Ed. Um, l- let me just ask you, Daniel, just quickly on this. It's funny, if we think back to the Trump sort of era, lots of companies sought to you know, underscore their corporate values by uh, coming out to criticise the president. It was usually, though, on social issues and where Trump had made uh, pronouncements or tweeted on those how do you think it sits when companies seem to get more involved in what is, by its nature, and in fact, as Ed's kind of described it there, a more explicitly political discussion? Yeah, that's a really interesting one and one that uh, Republicans, including the governor, are using against companies now that have taken a stand. Uh, we mentioned Coca-Cola off the top. Uh, well, Republicans are trying to remove Coca-Cola from the state house, for example, after uh, they came out to speak. Delta has obviously seen massive backlash. And, and the other one was Major League Baseball, which decided straight away to move the All-Star game out of Atlanta and to the state of Colorado. So now Colorado has come under uh, attack, of course. But I think to your point, there is uh, a major difference between saying something uh, like, we support Black Lives Matter and uh, and weighing in on this because Republicans are looking to use this against companies in a big way and, and ones that cross them politically. So it's something interesting uh, to watch, uh, but uh, Republicans will, will certainly uh, be arguing that uh, this isn't uh, an area or arena that uh, companies should be playing in. Well, speaking of arenas, let's wrap up the program. We're talking about the Olympic Games. Uh, North Korea has said it will boycott this summer's Tokyo Olympics in order to protect its athletes from the pandemic. The announcement comes as something of a blow to both Seoul and Tokyo, which would have hoped to use the global spectacle as an opportunity to further denuclearization talks. Earlier today on our Globalist programme, we heard from our friend Alessio Patilano, a professor at King's College London and an expert on Asian defence. He had this to say. North Korea's participation to uh, the Olympic Games since 1988, and if you remember to the Winter Olympics a couple of years ago, it's always been an important point to gain diplomatic brownie points, as it were. 
But their absence this time round, it also gives an indication that the internal state of tension and crisis due to COVID-19 is actually probably more than one would suspect. And lastly, of course, there is the question of how North Korea missing out on the Olympics takes something away from the opportunity of countries like Japan and South Korea to engage diplomatically on the side of the competition um, with the Hermit country. Um, Daniel Boach, officially Pyongyang says there's no COVID uh, in the North. The announcement from North Korea's sports ministry says they're deciding to withhold their athletes to avoid risk uh, or the risk of being in Tokyo. But it raises questions, surely, doesn't it, about the situation on the ground in the North? Alessio is alluding to that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we know that that's not necessarily the truth because we had a defector uh, last year crossing into China who was tested and and did have COVID. But I think uh, if we look to what uh, former UK ambassador to North Korea, John Everard, said today on uh, on the briefing on our program, uh, that uh, this would be a massive uh, problem for North Korea if it if COVID-19 were to spread further across North Korea. They're not only concerned about politics and, and propping up their regime, but uh, on their health care system, which could collapse uh, very quickly with high numbers of fatalities if this uh, were to uh, become worse. We don't know the state uh, of the situation there, but uh, obviously uh, it is one that uh, is uh, creating great concern for Pyongyang. And as well, I guess, um, Ed Stocker, let me bounce this to you, as well as a sort of diplomatic blow, we could be missing out on a a sporting upset. Who can forget? And I need to probably actually lower my voice slightly, given where you're sat right now. Uh, North Korea, probably the the greatest sporting achievement of the country. They, uh, They beat the Azuri. They beat the Italians at the World Cup here in England in 1966. Now we're robbed of the possibility of some kind of repeat. I know. And and you actually alerted me to this great upset. Um, I mean, don't forget their prowess in everything from weightlifting to wrestling and gymnastics, I might add. And actually, they've got more uh, Olympic medals than you would think. But having said all of that, yes, the fact that they beat Italy in the 1966 World Cup and they were kind of in the group of death with the USSR, Chile and Italy. Uh, they lost their first game 3-0. Drew, uh, that was uh, to the USSR, drew with Chile and then beat Italy 1-0. They got to the quarterfinals, which is amazing. And did you know this, Tom? They were winning 3-0. So they were coasting and then they ended up losing 5-3. The dream ended. Uh, what a dream it was. And we've, we're robbed of it now with their lack of participation uh, in the Tokyo Olympics. But that was a pretty impressive bit of um, spot World Cup sporting uh, historical knowledge ed i'm seriously impressed and i would like to thank you for that and for your participation in today's edition of the late edition thanks to to our daniel Bach uh, here in london to ed in milan and to all our editors today of course and to our studio managers louis allen and sam mp i'm tom edwards and that is all we have time for for now more great programming and music on the way of course and we'll be returning with the late edition at the same time tomorrow. Uh, I should just mention that just before this programme went to air, we premiered a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. So do find that online or wherever you get your podcasts right now. From me, though, and all the rest of the Late Edition team today, goodbye and thanks for being with us.